0: This is Your Morning Basket, where we help you bring truth, goodness, and beauty to your homeschool day. Hi everyone, and welcome to episode 65 of the Your Morning Basket podcast. I'm Pam Barnhill, your host, and I am so happy that you are joining me here today. Well, today is our final archive episode of the podcast. These are episodes that first appeared on the Homeschool Solutions Show in 2018, and we are bringing them over into the canon, so to speak, of your morning basket. And we've kind of saved one of the best for last. This episode is is with Cindy Rollins who I like to call the mama of morning time. She has turned an entire generation of homeschool moms onto the concept of doing morning time or morning basket in their home and I wanted to have Cindy on to talk about a book that is fascinating to both of us. This is Stratford Caldecott's Beauty in the Word. If you haven't read this one I highly recommend it and today we're going to be talking about grammar as remembering. And it's kind of a concept that uh, Caldecott takes a little bit of a different take on than is normally heard about in classical circles. So some of the concepts we're going to cover are the idea of anchoring or tethering our children to a cultural heritage and how you can use morning time to do that. Why is this important. We're also going to be talking about the connection between language and memory and how language helps form relationships with ideas. It's a really wonderful conversation. I think you're going to enjoy it and we'll get on with it right after this word from our sponsor. This episode of the Your Morning Basket podcast is brought to you by a month of morning time. Now a month of morning time is our special sale set of morning time plans and it's three whole weeks of morning time plans scheduled out for you but knowing how homeschooling is and how we often have things that come up in life we don't want to stress you out so we call this a month of morning time you can stretch those three weeks out into filling up an entire month now there's also a loop schedule in this special set of morning time plans that you can follow as well inside the set of plans we have a lovely selection of different things you can add to your morning time some bedtime math a whole bunch of information about Bach and the Brandenburg concertos some chalk pastel art and a little bit about some really great artists like Michelangelo and da Vinci there's so many wonderful things in here just a lovely collection of beautiful things to add to your morning time all laid out for you all ready to go all you have to do is collect a few books from your library so if you are interested in downloading this sample set of morning time plans head on over to pambarnhillcom forward slash month or click on the show notes for this episode of the podcast and now on with the show. Cindy Rollins is the mother of nine grown children with a passion for equipping families to practice morning time and homeschool for the long haul. The recipient of the 2016 Russell Kirk Paidea Prize, Cindy is the author of Mare Motherhood, as well as A Handbook to Morning Time. She joins us on this episode of the podcast to talk about morning time and Remembering. Hey Cindy, welcome to the podcast. Hello Pam, I'm so
1: happy to be here. It's always fun to talk to you.
0: It is always fun to have you on and we're going to talk today about like one of your favorite topics, aren't we? Absolutely, I, this is it's not my favorite topic. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about how you got introduced to Beauty in the Word and Stratford Caldecott and this idea um, he has of remembering.
1: Yeah, well, I guess it was at a Cersei conference that I must have heard Stratford Caldecott's name bantered around, and I know it bantered around for a couple years in my mind before I actually settled down to read Beauty in the Word, and I really didn't know what I was expecting out of the book. It certainly wasn't what I got. Um, It definitely, I thought I was going to read something a little dry, a little confusing as you know most educational treatises from scholarly men can be and um, I, I just the first section of the book just absolutely changed my life and it was as if he took everything I intuitively knew and finally turned everything up you know put the puzzle together and made everything fit properly especially when he started to talk about um, the Trivium, and he talked about what we called the grammar stage really being um, what he called the, the for rem- a remembrance stage or remembering. So that was huge for me at that time because um, it wasn't that what he was saying, it, saying was new. I mean, it was new, but um, it was actually just like a piece of the puzzle I had been missing. And it cleared up so much of why I was at odds With some forms of classical education where the trivium was, um, the first stage of the trivium was called the grammar stage and, and many people took that to mean that means we cram as much in the head as possible, uh, as far as facts and lists and all these things and rather than, um. And things the child knows nothing about, rather than through stories and poems and wisdom and literature and music and singing. Um, it was just a life-giving way to look at the trivium.
0: Yeah, and, and this this actually made a huge difference for me. And then he goes on, so this chapter, the chapter that we're specifically talking about is that the quote-unquote grammar stage chapter, uh, which he likens to remembering. And then he goes on and he does the same with the dialectic stage and the rhetoric stage as well. And, you know, talking about those in completely different ways than I had ever seen them talked about. So he he goes through the entire trivium in the book and really kind of turns it on its, its head. But I think... Uh, You know, he calls dialectic knowing.
1: Mm -hmm. And
0: I'm actually flipping through my book right now. And then speaking is the rhetoric stage. And like you, I was just really blown away by the idea that uh, this idea of grammar is more than just facts, more than just thinking about facts. And my chapter is full of so many things that I've underlined. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So talk to us a little bit about how this idea that Caldecott puts forth about remembering being distinct from and yet still connected to some of the, the connotations that we might associate with memory, such as recall or memorization.
1: Right. Well, it's not like, um, so we had this idea of the the trivium is a grammar stage and there was some memory going on, memorizing going on during that time previously, but it wasn't a life-giving memorization. It was really a kind of a disconnect. So Calicott basically takes it back and says, no, this is what the grammar stage is for it is for actually remembering um, beautiful things and those things are building the foundation it's still a foundational level but the foundation rather than being a a pile of facts it is that you're memorizing is is so many beautiful things that you're still kind of memorizing you're still memorizing these things I'm a big fan of memorization I I think there are very few things as helpful um, in, 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 at any age than memorization. Even as older people, memorization is still extremely helpful in our lives. So um, we, at every turn, I think memorization is the foundation of whatever ever we are doing. I wouldn't teach a child, a sub. almost every subject you could throw in some kind of memory thing and not just, oh, we're, we're in biology so we're going to memorize um, this, uh, or let's say chemistry, because then that's more—it's easier. Or, or anatomy—we're going to memorize the bones. The, the, when you're older, you're doing those things. But there are even beautiful things um, apart from that that you can memorize as a whole and not as. Um, in other words, as Karen Glass would say, we can memorize synthetically rather than analytically.
0: Yes. Oh, and so like you're talking and I'm thinking about the quote in the book where he talks about how, well, he's talking about Plato and he says that, you know, memory has been stripped from us and all we possess is an external reminder of what we have lost. And this was like uh, this next Mm. little backhanded part. He said, enabling us to pretend to a wisdom and an inner life we no longer possess in ourselves. And so he's saying if we don't have this remembering if we don't have this memory, then we're just kind of pretending to knowledge here.
1: Um, yes, and I think that is very true, and I think that you see that going on a lot. Um, and, you know, real education and real knowledge produce, should produce in us a humility, So when we see education not doing that, or when we see a form of like say classical education or intellectual education, or even, even a read, the reading life that produces a kind of a know-it-all you know, uh, arrogance um, or, you know, how can I one-up you? You know, I've I've read more than you have. Um, Then that's not at all what we're looking for. We're looking for what we're looking for is going to humble us, and, and it's going to be um, something that um, brings us life and not um, the death that we get when we're—actually, um, um, I read today, this morning, I was reading a devotional I have, and it's by Tim Keller, but he says here in the prayer at the end of this um, January 8th day, Lord, help me to avoid the, wor- the world shortcuts to looking wise the cynical air, the inside joke, the size and feigned sadness about how stupid everyone is. <laughs> Let me despise no one and respect everyone. And I just thought that was a really appropriate um, for what, what, what education, how education can go wrong. Yeah. careful.
0: Very much so. Okay, so we're talking here about a deeper kind of learning. We're talking about a remembering or a recalling. And you speak about this, and you write about anchoring and tethering our children to a cultural heritage. So I'm I'm kind of moving now from what memory is to what things we're supposed to be remembering. And Caldecott talks about memory and tradition as ways of passing down culture and joining generations together. So. What, what kind of cultural heritage are we talking about? What did you work to pass down to your children through morning time? Are we talking about like, go ahead.
1: No, no, go ahead. You, you ask. I'd like to hear what you were going to say. <laughs> well, I
0: was, you know, are we talking about like the Christian tradition, American heritage, Western civilization, all of the above or something else entirely?
1: All the above. <laughs> okay. Um, both, both, all of those things and also the poetic tradition all of these things we're going to bring to our mem to the memory Um, i think most children should at all times have maybe three pieces of memory going at at a time Mm -hmm. i don't think that's too hard they don't have to get through them in a six-week period they could take you know a half a year or a year to memorize if they had to but i still think it does the brain good have different types of memorization so a child might be memorizing the First Amendment and he might be memorizing you know the first uh, ten verses of Genesis and he might be memorizing a poem on top of all that so I I always thought it was important to have kind of a two-pronged memory Um, Well, the Bible poetry and then something that um, t- was cultural tied into the culture either the culture of the church you could do a creed you could do um, all, all kinds of things like that a prayer that you hear that sounds beautiful we did the West um, the West Point cadets prayers a beautiful prayer for boys and uh, you know that was just a cultural heritage because when you're memorizing these things you're hearing them over and over and over again. And you're also picking up things about the past. I like to say that the past has a DNA that is locked into some these words that we're memorizing. So as we're memorizing or even singing a folk song over and over and over again, suddenly there are words that we wouldn't know that take on life. There are whole cultures of people that become embedded in our soul that we understand in a new way that we might not even know that we know. And that will feed us the rest of our lives. So um, I, I just don't think there's much that we do that
0: bears as much fruit as that. So you're saying that, you know, you have these three pieces of memory work going and it's okay if they don't get it quickly. It's okay if this takes a while for them to actually kind of master the piece.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And some kids are going to master things easily and some kids are never going to master them. They're going to have worked on the piece for six weeks, eight weeks, 10 weeks and still, you know, miss a miss a word here and there consistently. That's okay. That's okay. We don't have to insist that we don't have to ruin the experience for that child because he's still getting all the benefits of having those words in his heart even if he um is it doesn't have them word perfect
0: (laughs) so okay and so at that point you would you would give it a time and when they had it mostly good you would move on to the next one because they've gotten the idea from that piece
1: exactly that's what I would do I would I mean I wouldn't kill it because we're not belaboring the piece we're not over and over talking about it and making and just killing it. We're just saying it each day quickly and going on. We're moving on and letting it do its own work. That I mean, and that's how I, I feel it should be done. Um, there are times when everybody at once is like, well, what in the world does that mean? And we can look it up. But for instance, we're when you're doing, um, to be or not to be, you can go for m- months or weeks going, uh, who was Fartle's bear, who I forget the line, but. Who knows what that means? And and no, you don't have to look it up right away. You don't have to be like, oh, oh, let's look this up. Sometimes it, you might want to do that, and sometimes you just might want to let that sit in the mind because that's what the mind is going to work on, looking for that, trying to figure that out. Let the mind do
0: the work, not the mom. Ooh, that's a really I good. Just said quote. That. I just said that. <laughs> I'm going to copyright that now. <laughs> I'm writing it down right now. So we don't forget it. <laughs> I love that so much. Because so often, especially with like, you know, scripture and harder pieces of poetry and things like that, we want to, uh, you know, provide the answer for our kids and tell them what it means. And, you know, so I think that it's okay to kind of uh, let them chew on that. Now, I do think it's important to make sure they're saying the right words. Yeah. Yeah. Because if you you've ever heard a kid like butcher yeah. the Lord's oh, yeah. Prayer or something like that? <laughs> they can get that way out true. left field with what they think you're saying.
1: <laughs> that is true. You can have all kinds of weird, uh, theological mistakes going on when you, uh, get to totally miss out on what the point of the word is. And kids will do that frequently. So it's, um, it's hard to, uh, it's hard to correct them sometimes, but yeah, I think getting the the words right is is good. It's a good thing, definitely.
0: Yeah, but they don't necessarily. It's okay if they don't one hundred percent understand everything that they're saying because that that wisdom is going to come to them over time. Right now, they're just they're getting those those words uh, internalized. Yeah,
1: you know, thinking about that, I, I think about when I go to church. Sometimes they'll sing a hymn, an old hymn. And somebody who has decided to update the wording so that it, it makes more sense to modern audiences. And I just feel like that takes all the intellectual meat out of the hymn. Um, that hymn was written a certain way by the author. And when we when we don't quite understand the wording, it makes it interesting to us because then we think about it and, and our minds work on it. And it, I just feel like it's super sad when uh, somebody thinks that to make the line simple um, will improve the hymn hmm. that's just my my opinion <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's
0: interesting. that yeah that's interesting it, that, that's make making me think of a, another situation that's going on right now uh, with the Lord's prayer or the our Father. Mm-hmm. Um, apparently, and I, and I don't know, like the whole deal, but, um, you know, I'm Catholic. And so the Vatican has come out and said, oh, what's the line? Lead us not into temptation. So you're Mm -hmm. asking God to lead us not into temptation. And they're saying that the, the wording on that one should have been different all these years and, Mm -hmm. um, because God would never lead you into temptation. And so I'm just in here going, oh, you know, this is going to take some pondering on my part (laughs) as to whether or not I'm ever going to be able to say anything other than lead us not into temptation, which I know it's kind of a different, a different thing, but it's like. Well, and and it is true because we,
1: it is like, there it is hanging, like God doesn't lead us into temptation. It says that clearly in the Bible. And yet we prayed that all this time. Did we, did we just intuitively understand what it meant? Right.
0: Oh right. Without yeah. I don't I'm worry about
1: on, it too much.
0: Yeah. I'm still chewing on that one. I'm not quite sure. I'm not quite sure uh, what my feelings are going to be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. a hard one, but it's like they're changing something or, you know, or clarifying something that has been that I've said for all of these years. And, and I think mm-hmm. I did know that, you know, it was never that God was going to lead me into temptation, but so even though i haven't been yeah so anyway it's interesting
1: yeah <laughs> we a, could really get messed up here if we started that's what about. that made me think of yeah right I right right
0: all right so let's me. let's talk about cultural heritage um and, okay. and we've kind of touched on this a little bit already but what do you think our cultural heritage is made of so if a mom's listening to us and they're like okay well I kind of like this idea of using memory to pass on cultural heritage to my kids. And we talked about Christian tradition and American heritage and Western civilization. But can we get more specific? What are some things that bind us together? And, you know, I know scripture is definitely going to be one, but what else?
1: Well, I mean, we said the creed, you know, the, um, the 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 apostles creed uh, i think what is it the nicene creed Uh which is the creed that we all can agree
0: on (laughs) i think it's the nice i mean the catholics do both we do the apostles and the nicene but um i think the nicene is the one that is said in like more traditions
1: right right and there are some things there are some great um uh, memory memory um things from american history there are um um, there's Thomas Paine's These Are the Times that Try Men's Souls. And um, when you start reading, especially when you go back in early American history and you start reading the, 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 um, the Declaration of Independence, maybe the first part of it, and, or the preamble to the Constitution, and you see this sentence structure and you realize how highly intellectual these men were and their their, their facility with language was... Um, incredible. And it just makes us better people to know that we are a little dumbed down. That <laughs> um, you know, that this was, this was a different way of speaking and writing. And it, and it was very precise. And, um, and it helps us, it helps our children, I think, to see and to know, and it creates that humility once again, that, oh, you know, I'm not the end all with my little you know, little things I do, I, there are people that came before me that, that had incredible abilities and it, and, and by contemplating what they wrote, it can become a part of me and that can have consequences.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, that makes me think of the part in the chapter where Caldecott talks about, and he, he kind of likens this to a speed, you know, we don't need to remember anything because we can Google things, but yeah. back and, and I think it was Plato who was the one who was complaining about the fact that people were writing things down yes right and he was worried that by writing things down yeah P- Plato's critique of writing calls into question the whole myth of progress that shapes our view of human history Caldecott just gives us those little zingers but um yeah. <laughs> he was talking about relying on it Um, external marks on paper to call things to mind that will lose their capacity to recall things from within themselves. Right. Right. We are like saying, oh, you know, now we don't even have to remember anything. We can just Google it. But even farther back, you know, Plato was saying, hey, you're writing things down now and you're going to lose something by doing that because we're not uh, we're not internalizing this stuff and remembering it inside of us.
1: Now, I think because we have Google, it's more important than ever for us to memorize not facts because we do have Google, but these other things, these other ways of speaking and looking at the world, the the western tradition our heritage and even sometimes looking at other cultures and other heritages and and, and seeing the way that they looked at the world and the way they interacted with it. And yes, you're right. I think writing changes things. And, um, you know, they even say, um, I heard a pastor say he didn't, he didn't allow them to um, record his preaching because he said just the act of recording it changed, changed it. So there's, there is, there is a lot there and we can't, we can't go back. We can't, you know, we do write and writing is a great way to think. But um, it is also a great way way to forget. And if the goal is remembrance, which is what Stratford is saying, it is, and I I fully believe he is correct, then to do the things that cause us to remember is very important, especially for our future, for the future, not just now. Um, We have to hold on to the past as we go into the future, and we are going to go into the future. We're not saying we're gonna, you know, dress up in hoop skirts and you know, and pretend to live in another time. And I think homeschoolers have made that mistake before, thinking, well, we'll just live in a different time. No, we're not able to live in a different time, but because we are going into the future, we must carry with us the wisdom that has come from the past because that's the only way we can get wisdom. We're not gonna get it within ourselves if we don't look back.
0: Mm. Well, speaking of her, um, hoop skirts, um, and we're talking about on a cultural heritage here, how do you handle aspects of our heritage that are not positive or mm-hmm. admirable? Yeah,
1: that, that's a very good question.
0: And, and there are
1: times when, well, I, I'll tell you how I handled it this year. This year I read two books to my student that had portrayals of racial portrayals that were awkward uh, one was Huckleberry Finn, and they used a, a word that I don't use in that book, and the other was Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry, which also used that word, that same word in a different way and a more... Um, in Huckleberry Finn, I, I believe Mark Twain's uh, purpose in writing that were pure and good towards African Americans. I but he wasn't an African American. And so I just changed the word. And that when I was reading it aloud, I'm not saying that a child couldn't read that word and understand the context. I would definitely have a conversation about it. I would not hand a child Huckleberry Finn with all the conversation. But in Roll of Thunder, hear my cry to take out that word would be to deny the pain and suffering that the family had faced. So we just kept the word in and we talked about this. This is how bad it was. This is how, this is why this family, you know, this is what they went through and look at what great attitudes they have and this sort of thing. But there are other books that, that definitely come from a much, much more, um, a less innocent aspect of that, of a different period of time. You can't change people in the past and you can't make them over into what, we think is right today and what you know the values that we've had the luxury to have in our culture some of the values that we have are improvements and we are doing better and we do think more highly of one another not not basing it on on you know our sex or our our race but that does not erase the fact that those people in the past also had wisdom that we may have forgotten And so I try to be just, I don't, I don't want, we don't have to whitewash what they said. We don't have to, we don't have to say, oh, this is good because they said it, but we can say, well, they have some good things to say, but they also in their time, this was considered good. Um, There were times when Christians, when when, um, evolution first came out, many, many Christians, um, thought, well, it's a done deal. They didn't know there was, uh, and so many Christians became evolutionists, um, even though they still cl- were still Christians. And we just have to, we can't say, well, I'm never going to read that person because it looks like they liked evolution. Um, we have to be broader minded than that. We have to see that they only had a certain set of information and we only, we have a different set. And we, if we're going to, and we can learn from them because if we limit ourselves, to just books that are written in our time with our values, we are going to be severely crippled as we go into the future. Hmm. In my opinion. (laughs) (laughs) What What do you think? I mean, you might have a different opinion, so I'd love to hear that if you have it.
0: Well, you're making me think, and so I have to kind of process the information. It doesn't come out that quickly, but, you know, I I think you're right because you have to know the whole story, and so yeah. you can't limit yourself to one small piece of the story just because it's the piece that you agree with. You have to know the entire story in order to, you know, make judgments and be part of the conversation, and and so you just can't leave parts of it out, and so just because you read something or or just because you experience something doesn't mean that you necessarily agree with everything about it. Right. I do think it's important to look at things from all sides in order to, you know, to come up with your own thoughts about something.
1: Yeah. And we don't, I mean, there's very few things that we're going to agree with anyway, unequivocally, even now, I mean, things that are written now are not necessarily better for being um, pure you know, there is a point of no return where we purified the the, the truth right out of things,
0: and that's mm-hmm. a sad moment in time, too. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Well, as you're looking back on morning time and and doing this for all of the years with your kids, what what kinds of things that you did? What things do you ha- um, think conveyed? cultural heritage to your children? And I know there's just memorizing, but what else?
1: Well, I mean, we read aloud a lot of of historical books. And and when we first started, I I didn't know the history. So I'm reading these very basic, maybe first and second grade books out loud to my kids. And I'm like, what? I didn't know that. (laughs) And um, I think it was the time that we had to devote to those things. So we got a, we had a really broad picture of the heritage that we came from, especially we were very good at doing American history early on and it wasn't until later years that we got into a lot of the ancient history. At the very end of my homeschooling career, I finally read The Iliad and the Odyssey out loud to two of my my children and I it it was. It was it went very well with the American history that we had read. In fact, and that is also Plutarch. If you look at Plutarch, very much tuned in. I mean, you will not read anything in Plutarch that doesn't sound contemporary. Well, you might. There might be some weird things about vandals and um, stuff, but but Plutarch is very relevant to to our time. And you cannot read Plutarch without being aware. That um, these were lessons that they learned in, in Roman and Greek times, and these and these are so not so different from what we are facing today in many ways. They have the same problems with their leaders that we have with ours, and seeing how they dealt with it can help us to um, because sometimes when you're in a bubble, you think, "Oh, this is the answer," when really it isn't. And then sometimes you can look back in history and say oh yeah, they thought that too, but it didn't turn out to be that way.
0: Hmm. That's interesting. Um, and it, yeah, it, it's good to point out, and we we have a podcast where Anne White comes on and talks to us about Plutarch and how to study Plutarch. And I think you've done an episode with her too. And uh, it, one of the things that was fascinating to me was Plutarch was not history for Charlotte Mason students. It was actually Like civics for them, right?
1: That's right. It was citizenship. That's exactly right.
0: Yeah. So Plutarch, that's that's a good one. And then you mentioned hymns and folk songs and poetry as well.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, we did stories. We did a lot of, um, I I think fairy tales. I know you've had Angelina on. Fairy Mm -hmm. tales are wonderful. Different folk tales. I love to go into the library section because it's hard to cover all the folk tales that there are out in the world, but if you just go into that section of the library and you start looking at the books and pulling those, looking through those, I, that was always my favorite section of the library. There's so many good books and stories in the in the, um, in the um, traditional tales section of even the picture books. There's some wonderful picture books and um, and don't ask me names. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm trying to think. My brain is, uh, uh, but there are like Paul Gaudon He wrote some really good that that the um, the, the, um, the Peter Shams wrote. These are some of these are really old books, and I know many libraries have gotten rid of some of these traditional, beautifully illustrated stories. Uh, Shakespeare is something else. That um, oh, yeah. the, the, the more I grow, you know, I'm still growing up in Shakespeare, but you can't help, but, um, you know, Shakespeare is so cliche because he has affected our language in a real way.
0: Yeah. And I think it's good to point out that, you know, just to kind of reiterate, we're talking about memorizing here, but we're also, this remembering goes even deeper than memorizing. It's, it's kind of this, remembering who you are and your place in this, this grand story, this grand cultural story through stories, songs, poems. So it's not just memorizing, but it's also uh, listening to those stories and hearing those songs and, and, and all of those things, not just the, the memorization. And just
1: having, you know, beautiful music, classical music um, playing in the background is so important because, no, your children might not grow up to be able to say, "Oh, that's the, you know, the Ninth Symphony or or whatever, but they will um have an appreciation for it because there's something about that music that that speaks to our heart and they will remember that it is good. And, and I, I, very few people actually hate classical music. I mean, at least if if they've listened to it at all, they don't.
0: <laughs> right. Well, Caldecott talks about the connection between language and memory and how language helps us form relationships with ideas and helps us put the pieces together and figure out the world. So how does this tie in with Charlotte Mason's writings about ideas, relationships, and uh, spreading the feast for our children?
1: Okay. Um, what, did, what did you say Caldecott said again? Let me Let me get this clear in my head.
0: Well, he talks about the connection between language and memory and how language helps us form relationships with ideas and put together the pieces and figure out the world. Hold on. Let me see if I can find that little section.
1: Well, I agree with you that uh, I agree. I agree with him. <laughs> There is nothing, I think that is what the grammar stage is for, language. I think that when we understand the point of the grammar stage is language, then that's where this whole idea of remembrance comes in and the whole idea of culture comes in. It is very, very important to have a strong foundation in language um, in speaking and writing and and the grammar stage, you know, you're not doing a lot of writing, writing, the child is not writing things down. But he is, he is remembering because you're asking him to remember um, what he has read. And, and, and that's a, a deep part of um, – and even before you're asking him, him that, you're reading, them, you're reading your children's stories that they do remember and they do want to remember. And then the child turns around and takes, the, takes all that. And if you give them time to play – then you will see the narration. You don't even have to have a formal narration. If a child is able to play at a young age, when they're in this remembrance stage, um, you'll see this language coming out in, in in their play. I remember my boys used to say, you know, I hear them outside yelling, "What's over yonder?" And then someone say, "I need the blunderbuss," and um, you know, they'd be using all these really strange words. And I think, man, they're really weird kids, <laughs> but. Um, but that's what they did with the stories they 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 acted them out on their own after they had heard them so um so charlotte mason is basically saying you know if you if you are hearing these things and you're and you're listening with attention and and, and because most of these things are pretty awesome people do want to listen with attention then you are going to recreate them in some way in your life as you think about them, as you, as you ponder them. And as you eventually, you know, you're going to narrate them, but um, that's just a natural process. Um, so we want those early years to be language heavy, language rich. Really the whole point of the early years is to have the child interacting with words and ideas.
0: Yeah, there's a, there's a quote at the end of the chapter that I just love. He says, and I, it's like, okay, could I please go back and do this over again? Yeah, <laughs> I, I could do the early years over again now that I've read this. But he says, the first lesson of our revised trivium is therefore the vital importance of crafts, drama and dance, poetry uh, and storytelling as a foundation for independent and critical thought. Through doing and making, through poesis, the house of the soul is built.
1: Yes. And then he goes on in that same quote, it, which is just really, really the heart and soul of everything he's saying. And he brings out the point that poetry, and I'm sorry, I didn't already say this, because is made of images, similes, mm-hmm. metaphors, and analogies. And that is how language changes us. And that is how language works upon us. When we compare, you know, our feelings to something we see outside, that that is a higher order of thinking. And a child picks up that up effortlessly in this sort of education. So, you know, you know, they say what is it, the Miller analogy test is the highest test for intelligence that you that, that they have. Analogies are not that hard for children who have grown up with poetry, constantly seeing language used in this way, sure they may not understand every metaphor, every analogy, every simile that they come across in poetry, but they're seeing language used that way, and they are. It makes you have a heightened awareness that I got to pay attention. And when you get older, and, and they, you know, they throw an analogy test in front of you, which they don't do very much anymore because obviously people can't handle it. But say <laughs> in the past they did. Um, it, it's not that hard to do analogies when you have been looking at the world through that, that through, as a metaphor through language.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and then just to think about, you know, going back to scripture. I mean, it's just it's chock full of those kinds of mm-hmm. things. So just to get uh, prose, things we read, everything, the, these analogies are everywhere. And so uh, the poetry is the kind of training ground for understanding so many other things that are out there it's like the mental exercise part
1: I always I always say that um, poetry to me is the bridge between the trivium and the quadrivium Um, the trivium is language if you want to just use two some broad words say the trivium is about language and the quadrivium is about mathematics poetry is the bridge uh, and music, of course, music is very much a part of the quadrivium and it is mathematical in many ways. Um, but it is the bridge between those two things, between music and language. So, poetry is a very important part of heart. Very few things besides Bible are as important as poetry because of the, the higher order of thinking. And, and the delightful way it causes us to wonder also. And it leaves our brains just thinking, thinking, thinking. What, you know, That's why we don't always want to tell the child what the poem means. Sometimes we can. Sometimes we can help them through so that they, the next poem they get to, they can do the work on their own. You know, you go to bed at night. And I, I, I remember doing, the reason I know this works is because there were a couple of poems I memorized over the years with the kids for instance, um, and there were long, long poems. One time we did Horatius at the bridge, which takes a full 20 minutes. Well, we didn't study that poem so much as we just said it over and over. But the more, the more I went, the longer I memorized that poem, the, the more sentences made sense to me as I went, you know, my brain couldn't take it all in at once, but eventually, oh yeah, yeah. That's, that's a type, that's a place, you know, maybe I didn't even know it was a place when I'm tripping over all the weird words that I don't, you know, I don't normally see, but eventually my brain, you know, is able to say, okay, now I know what that word means. Now I know what this word means. And it's constantly working on it. So each day when I read the poem, it made more sense to me.
0: Hmm. Well, and I think, I think that brings up a very important point is that it's okay if we don't get it the first time. It's okay. If we don't understand it the first time, it's okay. If we can't explain it to them. Maybe we shouldn't even be trying. We just need to let it work on us. Yes, absolutely. Sometimes
1: moms can get so excited about what they get that they can kind of steal it from. I I just read something C.S. Lewis said. I'm trying to think of where I read that. Oh, his letters to children where he essentially said, I don't know if I can find it right now, but he, Lewis said something really. I didn't underline it because I was lazy but a little girl asked him something about a poem and he's just said something really, really, um, so uh, what, not what you think he'd say, um, but rather what kind of along the lines of what we're saying right here to her and I can't find it. So if I'd underlined it, I would have been able to find it, but I did not.
0: I understand. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's talk about, Caldecott describes the Hall of Fire in Rivendell from Tolkien's Lord of the Rings trilogy as the place where tradition is passed on through story, where meaning is revealed, where language expresses itself in the making and interpretation of of worlds. How can morning time become our Rivendell or our place of hospitality and rest, a place of story, poetry, and song?
1: Okay. Wow. Wow. I mean, when we're building a family culture, um, when when we're doing stuff together, we're building a family culture, and and I think that's extremely important. It is that whole because you do share those things; they never can be taken away from you. Um, when I talk to uh, my children, you know, now, and I say something that we have a we have a common culture and a heritage that. Um, And and you even see this breaking apart in our culture now. It used to be we we would read books together, we would read poems together, or, you know, of course, Morning Time does that, but in the culture, but then, like, TV, radio came along, but still people were sitting around the radio together and listening to stories. But then later, TV came along, but still people were sitting around the TV They, you know, everybody had their own TV, one TV in their home. And, but now, nobody comes home on, on Monday night and watches Little House on the Prairie all together like we used to do when I was first married. Monday night was my Little House on the Prairie night, and my husband would come home from work, and I would be sitting there. He would get home about eight or right when the show was over, and I would just be sitting there sobbing every week after the end of the show, <laughs> not because it's over, because it was just so melodramatic and sad, but there was this shared culture where everybody in the culture would say, oh, did you see Little House on the Prairie last night? <laughs> And now we've lost that so much because we all can stream and watch something on our own. Now we may find a tribe of people online that they're all watching this show together, but it's our, in our own families, you know, we're all watching something else. And so we don't have that conversation. We don't have that, we don't have that fire, that hall, that great hall with a fire to transfer culture. We're, we're, to, it's becoming more and more and more fragmented every Everything that we do, all our stories are far, far apart from one another, and we don't have a common a common culture to share them with. I mean, when you think about, I don't know how many stories the Greeks actually had. Um, we know they had the Iliad and the Odyssey, and maybe, maybe they have hundreds of stories, or maybe they only, you know, had a few, I don't know, but um, every, because they, that was their only entertainment, they um, all knew those
0: same stories. Mm. Yeah, that's that one will make you think. That is an (laughs) interesting thought, that they all knew the same stories. And so that it was something that that bound them together.
1: And even in the Bible, you hear Paul talking about stories that he assumed everybody knew. And we don't know them now as much, but he's speaking about stories and things that that they were familiar with at that time.
0: Hmm. I'm going to have to chew on that one for a while. Oh, yeah. (laughs) It's like, oh, man, that's really good. I mean, you know, I've talked about shared family culture before. Um, and about you know being able to, to to kind of have that idea of oh so and so no you know we we all know the same things but I think it was like this moment that it struck me absolutely how important this was that that our shared family culture and everybody knowing the stories is kind of a reflection of you know this this greater like the Greeks and everybody knew those stories and. And so that's a cultural heritage that has lasted for so long and had such a huge impact. And was it because everyone knew the stories?
1: Whereas if you look
0: at us where we are so fragmented and we don't have stories that everyone knows anymore, you know, a thousand years from now, what impact will our society have?
1: Yeah. Because we've lost that. that. yeah, I mean, it really is something to think about and to think, is there something we've replaced stories with? Is there something, or or is it just that we're gorging ourselves on stories and we just have so many stories that they're, they can't have any effect on us because we're, um, or the effect they have is, is not culturally as a group, but it is too fragmented, too far out. Um, I like to talk about that whole thing of being... Um, Tethered, like you say, and I got that idea when I was watching um one of those weird movies in space where the guy got lost. He was unhooked from he was tethered to the space thing and um it was George Clooney. So everybody will know this movie, but my brain won't come up with it. But he was tethered to the spaceship and it got untethered and then he was just lost in the universe. And it was just so profound watching it. It was also terrifying. To think of, uh, there he was he's was going to live some more I mean he wasn't going to live very long but he was going to live completely disconnected from everything and I started thinking about what how does that affect us is that our job to tether as put as many tethers into our our ourselves and our children because honestly sometimes we don't have um even with our children, we don't have complete autonomy over them eventually. Um, this is coming from a mom who <laughs> has learned that the hard way. But, but we do, even ourselves, even for ourselves, it's important that we're tethered to the past so that we can move into the future because otherwise it's just insanity. And I think we are seeing a little bit of that now as everything is untethered. Um, you could say, you know, we have this center, but all these stories have just flown out, and they're just all over the place, and they're just like rocks in the the
0: air, like of the, the the universe. <laughs> I'm
1: gonna, my metaphors are gonna get weirder and weirder.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna entitle this podcast "Deep Thoughts" with Cindy Rollins. <laughs> okay, sorry. <laughs> no, but just thinking about yeah, off the deep end. No, no, but this, you know, this is kind of our role to tether our children and that we are, I mean, there is a lot of, there is a lot of untetheredness or a lot of fragmented, you know, fragmentedness and yeah. And, and I think that just, that just brings me back to the quote from earlier and now I'll have a hard time finding it, but. Plato's critique of writing calls into question the whole myth of progress that shapes our view of human history. We think we're so, you know, we've progressed so far over these old cultures, but um, Mm. maybe honestly we haven't.
1: You know, when people say to me, um, do I have to have morning time, which I always find to be a really odd question. Um, No, you don't have to have morning time. That's your choice altogether. But when I think about these things, I think, yeah, you have to have one mm-hmm. time. You ha- if you want to preserve culture, this is, this is a really simple way to do it. <laughs> no, you don't have to. have. There are other things you can do in your family that can preserve your culture. But if your children are all just off doing all their, all their schoolwork all by themselves, each in their own way, and you're doing your own thing on the computer or whatever, there are times for that, and that's good. But if that's all that you're gaining at a home point, then, then you are missing a huge philosophical um, gap there. And, um, and that's why, you know, reading aloud is a, a start. I mean, even if you can't pull off a morning time, um, you can pull, uh, hopefully you're pulling off reading aloud one, one or, two, you know, one book to your family at a time. And that, that is another form
0: of doing that. Mm. Well, we're going to end on that note because (laughs) I think that's a fabulous apologetic for morning time. And we're just going to, we're just going to let that hang out there and let people think about that one. (laughs) So (laughs) Cindy, thank you so much for joining me here today. You've given me a lot to chew on. It'll be, um, it'll be a few days before I unpack all of this one in my head and, and think about it all. Tell everybody where they can find you online.
1: Okay, well, you can find me at um, cindyrollins.net. That's my new home online. And I'm um, on Facebook as Cindy Rollins, uh, writer, speaker, encourager. I'm not sure how you find that on Facebook. But um, I, if you want to like those things, that'd be great. Or sign up for my new newsletter. Um, that would be fantastic. I'm, I'm hopefully still tethered. But I'm moving out into a new, a new adventure to see where I will head. So that's where you can find me.
0: And there you have it. Now, if you would like links to any of the books and resources that Cindy and I chatted about on today's episode of the podcast, you can find them on the show notes for this episode. Those are at pambarnhill.com slash YMB65. Also on the show notes, we have some helpful instructions for you. If you would like to leave a rating or review for the Your Morning Basket podcast in iTunes, the ratings and reviews that you leave help us get the word out about the podcast to new listeners. And so we really appreciate it when you take the time to do that. Thank you very much. I'll be back again in a couple of weeks with another great Morning Time interview. We have Alicia Greathouse and her daughter Olivia. They're going to be on the podcast with us. And they're going to be talking all about their brand new podcast, Masterpiece Makers. Now, this is an art appreciation podcast for families. So moms can listen, kids can listen, everyone can listen together. And it is just so much fun. So we're gonna be talking a little bit about art appreciation about this new podcast and about how you can use it in your morning time to add a little art appreciation to your day. So we hope you join us for that. And until then, keep seeking truth, goodness, and beauty in your homeschool day.